My guest is Professor David Montgomery. The topic is the history of soul in the past and its role and the future for the next hundred years. Professor Montgomery is a geomorphologist. He teaches at the University of Washington, Seattle, and he specializes in the evolution of geological topography and the influence of the geomorphological processes on ecological systems and human societies. We're going to talk about dirt. That's the topic of his new book, Dirt, the Erosion of, of Civilizations. Nice to have you with us today. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me on. Let us go back to the 1930s. Uh, there was a book by John Steinbeck, and uh, there was a major film with Henry Fonda, and it was it dealt with the Grapes of Wrath, dealt with people in mid-America, Kansas, Oklahoma, uh, Illinois, Indiana, our breadbasket. And at that time, the truth was that more than 10% of the farmland in the United States was so seriously eroded that it could not support or sustain crops. This was not something that nature had done as a quirk. Rather, it was something that was almost inevitable because of what we had neglected. We had gone into monoculture a single crop. Generally, it was wheat or corn. And farmers were guaranteed a certain price for a bushel of that. And as a result, every year they just kept farming, and then they'd farm more of the same. But farming had changed in as little as 30 years. Because go back to the end of the 1800s, the beginning of the 1900s, farms were completely different. My family had a farm in Little Hawking, Ohio. And I'd just like to take a moment before you get into your topic and talk about what farming was at that point. It was a farm of about 130 acres, but in that they had an enormous diversity of heirloom seeds. They had more than 20 types of apple trees alone. They had peaches, and they also had plums and pears, wide variety of fruit. And what they would do, they would harvest that throughout a season. They would allow the fruit to stay on the tree for as long as it could. And by the way, in some cases, that would be four months. By the way, I just did a test. Uh, citrus comes into, into season in Florida. I have a farm in Florida, an experimental organic farm. Mm-hmm. And it comes into season in the beginning of December, first two months of uh, weeks of December. It's generally completed down there by the middle of January, end of January at the latest. I'm still able to harvest grapefruit and oranges nine months later. Now think of that. Wow. Have you ever heard of that before? <laughs> no. <laughs> nine, let me explain this to the audience. I actually, two weeks ago, was picking grapefruits and oranges off trees that those fruits had come to ripeness in December. That's nine months later, and I'm still allowing them to stay to see if they can be there um, until a full year. I've never seen that happen before, and I'm not aware that it, it, it could, but it's nine months, and I've never seen that. And part of the reason that that happens is because everyone get in, gets in this habit of harvesting everything by contract or by season immediately and then shipping it off to the various points where it's distributed. Well, they didn't do that. And what they did was when they did harvest something because of the seasonal change or frost, which might have killed it, they would put it into baskets and they would take it into root cellars. And the root cellars were generally large underground rooms. 
Uh, and these rooms were at least five to six feet underground, sometimes a little deeper, and they stayed at about 55 degrees year-round. And you could have fruit, especially your root vegetables, that would stay almost a half a year easily, as well as apples, in these root cellars. The other fruit they would take and they would thinly slice them and then string them up in attics. And then over a period of days or weeks, these would dry. Or they would put them in the summertime, uh, out in the, out, out, uh, like they would take grapes and put them on these cloths, and then the cloths would be covered from insects, and they'd let them stay in the sun, take them in at night, then put them back out in the morning. And after four or five days, they had raisins or they had dried fruit. And they would have kegs of dried fruit. They would have uh, giant uh, barrels of all types of whole grains, and it was not uncommon to have three or four types of grains, generally rye and wheat, certainly, and corn. They would, um, we didn't have rice grown at that time here, but they had lots of different types of potatoes, over 25 different types of potatoes, including uh, the tubers in the yam and sweet potato family, and turnips and parsnips and kohlrabi, etc., Now, you would see that they had chickens that they allowed to run free, and the reason they allowed them to run free was simple. They would always come home to roost at night before sunset, and they would eat insects all day long. And as long as you allowed them to go anywhere they wanted, they would go into the garden. They would not damage or eat the fruit or vegetables, but they would eat the insects off the leaves and out of the ground because they dig for larvae. And it was a great natural insecticide. They would leave their manure in its place, and that would biodegrade down and rebuild the soil after a period of time. They had compost heaps where everything that was not any longer edible and then old hay from the barn, so they would throw on a pile, and this pile in time, this compost heap, would break down biologically, and then that would rebuild the soil. They knew about the soil. They would intentionally rest certain fields, not grow anything, and then they would uh, rotate their crops because they were wise enough to know, without being scientists of the soil, that if you keep growing the same crop every year, insects will adapt to that. In fact, actually be born in the soil and devastate your crops. They had very little loss of insect by insects. And um, they even had cold frames so they could grow in the wintertime. They they had honey uh, and bee pollen, bee propolis. They made it into poultices for wounds or infections to prevent gangrene because they didn't have penicillin or antibiotics. Uh, they would make ciders. They would make pear cider, apple cider. Uh, they would make grape juice. And they would uh, trade this, barter it. They had very little money, but they had barter. They would bake breads, whole grain breads. And the whole grain bread would be baked, in this case, in a, in a French oven, where the bricks would be heated up, then the bread dough put in there, and then that would heat the house for the rest of the day. That was especially important in the wintertime. They actually did sprouting. They saved seeds, and they traded seeds. They had deep artesian wells for water. Now, these people lived long lives, and they were healthy. Mind you, there was no Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security, welfare, food stamps. There was no safety net at all. The only safety net was their own ingenuity, an understanding of being a steward, a caretaker of their, their place, and they maintained it. They had multiple skills. They had to. In the wintertime, you might be snowbound for days or weeks, sometimes even months. So they had to be completely self-reliant. They were people of strong faith, substantial families, and strong values. That all changed when a very heavy emphasis upon mechanized farming occurred, 
where you no longer had to grow 50 to 100 different items. You could use them fresh, dried, can them, but now it was all different. You could give up all that and grow one crop and be guaranteed a certain amount of money. And that's what began. And then it accelerated. Well, have we learned a lesson from the Great Dust Bowl? Our scientists will say, yes, we have. We have the best soil in the world. I say that is not the full truth. It is only partially true. When you look at a green field, do you know the mineral value? Do you know if it has earthworms? Do you know how much manganese and calcium? Do you know what its pH is? Do you know how deep the topsoil is? No. And that's why we've invited you to share your insights with us. So let us begin by taking a look at something that was rather unique in America at one point, sustainable farms. Today, you'd be hard put to find that kind of environment, except for those people who are more modern, who are trying to recreate some quality of life, uh, in going back to the homestead concept. But when you look at the larger area of our soil, tell us what we're not seeing. Tell us when we drive through the country or flying over a parcel of land or even walking on it, what we don't see and what we should pay attention to and why. This is important. And please take your time. Do it more like a classroom on the air. Okay. Well, the business of farming, has, as you're saying, has radically transformed in the last century. And most people, when they think of soil, don't really think of it as a living system. I mean, it is truly the interface uh, between geology and biology, what you could call the skin of the earth, what, um, where life mix with, mixes with the nutrients that life needs to sustain itself and, and creates the fertile environment that will produce yet more life. Um, and what most people don't see when they look out at a farm um, or at a soil in a natural environment are the processes that shape the soil, that make it what it is, that, that lend it its fertility, or that reduce its fertility, depending on how we, in turn, treat the soil. Um, and it's, it's, um, I'm trained as a geologist, and uh, one of the perspectives that geologists have are to be able to look at the long term, the truly long term, you know, hundreds to thousands of years as being fairly brief instance in the life of the planet. And if we think of soil, it's a resource that is formed and, can, and lost over time scales that are, are really those at which geologists think over, centuries to thousands of years. Because um, if you think about how fast soil is formed, uh, it's on rates of millimeter, uh, fractions, hundredths of a millimeter per year. It's very slow. Our fingernails grow far faster than soil forms. But if we look at uh, that same sort of farm, um, and the Dust Bowl is a, a great example of this problem gone uh, to an extreme, uh, when we change the surface of the earth, the vegetation that is growing on nat native soils, uh, the rate at which they are eroded can skyrocket. It can go up by 10 to 100, and in some cases, thousands of times. And it still can be slow rates, but over centuries, that can mean that at losing a millimeter of soil, say, a year for a few centuries or a thousand years, you can burn through you know, three feet of soil and, and go through the entire natural endowment that allows people to farm in some regions. And that's one of the reasons why some of the areas um, in where there have been previous civilizations in the Middle East, Middle East um, and other examples are relatively impoverished today because they've gone through this process over the, a very long period of time and slowly lost the uh, basis for their own fertility. Let us talk now about what's what we're not seeing in the soil today and how the the green movement 
which was heralded as a major advance. In fact, people actually won a Nobel Prize for helping bring in the Green Movement. The Green Revolution actually had a downside that we didn't see. We didn't see it in India. We didn't see it with our genetically engineered seeds and taking away all their multi-crops and putting in a monocrop and having to use pesticides. Tell us about that, please. You know, the the Green Revolution was uh, allowed far greater production of food, but in many uh, ways at the expense of soil health and soil fertility, which is important to maintain in the long run, to actually maintain production of large amounts of food. And uh, the the reliance on uh, very intensive fertilizer use uh, has really changed, and in combination with, with single cropping, with a monoculture, has really changed the, the whole ecology of agricultural fields from the kind of system that you were describing with, with your, your old family farm of a very integrated, multi-crops, uh, a complete ecological cycle, keeping and recycling nutrients on the farm while deriving food from it. We're now essentially literally mining both the soil and the nutrients that we put into it rather than relying on a self-sustaining natural fertility of a coupled ecological and soil system. So we've, we've fundamentally transformed the way that food is produced. Um, and part of that shows up back in, I think, in uh, human health in terms of the obesity epidemic, uh, epidemic that we have, uh, the kinds of food that are available to most people in urban environments uh, these days. And I think people are becoming aware of that, and it's leading to the, the desire and uh, for essentially a new agricultural revolution of looking at returning to ways of producing food that sustain the soil, that sustain soil fertility, and that produce healthier food um, that can support healthier people. Let's give a few examples of that. Uh, Today, there are now six studies that I'm aware of and have on comparing organic gardening and farming with uh, more uh, modern farming using pesticides, herbicides, and artificial soil boosters like the um, the artificial mixes. Now, mm-hmm. without exception, it shows that you have a higher nutrient value in the organic. And yet the mm-hmm. argu- argument has been against organic, yeah, but you don't get the same yields. And I'm arguing on the other side of that, but hold on a second. 90% of most grains, including soy and uh, certainly corn, and are going for animal production. And that's a very poor use because it takes 23 pounds of grain eaten by a cow to create one pound of beef. And if you add in how much water they use, it's 1,300, excuse me, 3,100 gallons of water to make one hamburger. And it takes uh, 60 gallons of water to, to grow a potato. So we're not factoring in the water consumption the land consumption, the pollution and the methane gases from the animals, 8 billion animals raised in America, what they do to the land that will destroy the topsoil because they hoof it out. And ask anybody who has an a- animals, large animals on their, their property, and it's, they no longer have topsoil. They, they, have, yeah. they, have, they have sand because they all eat off and yank it out, and there's nothing there. So if we could learn that organic is better, and it's not about matching yield for yield, that, that's a wrong approach to take, but are you actually getting in that tomato the nutrients that are going to help your health? Or are you getting a tasteless, genetically modified 
uh, product that is deficient in some of the nutrients you require. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, it's sort of a, a simple visit to a farmer's market and uh, it, uh, tasting organically grown food where you're getting it straight from the farmer answers the question right off in the sense of it feels like healthier food. It tastes better. It does. It is better food. Um, the studies that uh, that I'm aware of that have looked at the relative yields of organic and uh, conventional industrialized agriculture tend to find relatively comparable yields. You know, they may be off 5 or 10% in one direction or the other in, in one study or another. But one of the really big myths, I think, surrounding uh, organic agriculture is that it does not produce the yields comparable to conventional agriculture. Um, it can be difficult to do organic farming on very large farms. And so there's a very a strong incentive for uh, really large farms to be uh, uh, industrialized um, and, and not organic. But the idea that organic agriculture could not feed the world really is one of the sort of persistent myths around uh, food that we have. Um, and, and not only for the reason that, um, uh, that you're bringing up of the sort of the 10 to 1 uh, loss or energy inputs every level of a food chain that you add. So if, you, if we're eating a cow, it's 10 times less efficient than if you're eating what the cow ate. <laughs> um, but just in terms of actually growing raw yields, there's not that big a difference uh, from intensive organic agriculture and intensive industrial agriculture. But there sure is a difference in nutrient and taste and freshness, and most importantly, oh, yeah. the idea that we're supporting local economies, local ecologies, local environments. Well, and there's also the idea of how far did your food travel? If, if we think of uh, the world, if we sort of put on our geological uh, forecasting glasses for, for a minute and think about the shape of the world in 100 or 200 years, once we've burned through the supply of readily available uh, fossil fuels that we're, we're essentially living off of now, um, it will be very inefficient to ship food sort of halfway around the world. It would be very efficient to actually eat stuff that's grown locally. Um, and in terms of the, sort of the global carbon budget and energy use at present, it makes sense to eat locally as well. But there's also the, not in just in terms of the, the uh, uh, global warming tie-in and the energy problem, but sort of local food grown in and uh, organically is healthy food. It sure is, and it's fresher. It's you, ha- you have more yeah. antioxidants, and, and also you're not polluting the environment. I can never remember growing up where any farm had pollution on it. But listen to this. This is from the BBC News today. It says, more than 10% of China's farmland is polluted, posing a, quote, severe threat to the nation's food production. And that's according to their own state media. Now, I'll quote this. It says, arable land shrank by 307,000 uh, hectares. That's, that would be 7,600 acres in the first 10 months of last year. And uh, excessive fertilizer use, polluted water, heavy metals, and solid human waste are to blame. Rapid economic growth has had a dampening effect on uh, this, uh, in this Chinese environment, and it's caused us damage. The land the Minister of Land and Resources said agriculture land in China uh, fell to 121 million hectares, that's 300 million acres, um, last year. Now, there are several ideas here. First, there was heavy metals in the contamination uh, in their grains, and that is just horrific. 
and uh, because when you consider that China has been taking human manure, which does not biodegrade down the same as animal manure, and uh, in animal manure, to do it correctly, because I've done it for a long time, you generally have to let it sit for about a year, sometimes a year and a half. Uh, some manures are hotter, have a higher nitrogen level, and therefore take longer to biodegrade down. But when it's done properly and you're able to test it as it's breaking down, you end up with some really good soil boosters. And uh, But I've also been using seaweed. Uh, we go down to the ocean in the morning, and when the tide has gone out, there's all the sea vegetation, and we just rake it up and take it back and dry it out and then mulch it. You know, and that reboosts the soil tremendously. Well, in China, they take human manure and they spread it on fields. We, we, by the way, also been doing that in the United States. We call it sludge. Anytime you hear the word sludge, understand what you're really getting. Well, what are in, what's in human manure? Well, you've got heavy metals: lead, mercury, cadmium, uh, nickel, zinc. You also have you have all form of parasites. You have medications. Uh, and the drugs that are in these are are very stable. They stay in the water. They stay in the soil for a long period of time. And um, and that does not biodegrade down. And yet that's what's used. And so you have massive parasitic problems because there's no real degradation process. Then they're putting enormous amounts of fertilizer on because they have an ever-growing population. And the big thing in China is they now have the largest middle-class working group of affluent individuals on the planet. Now imagine that. They have more middle-class people, and the middle-class in America is not your working class. Your middle-class are lawyers, engineers, architects, accountants, um, physicians, uh, professors. That's our middle-class, people who make between a hundred to $500,000. The working class are people generally making between forty dollars to $100,000, between one and two people. And then you have your uh, a poor class. Well, in China, they only had a poor class and a small ruling um, uh, elite group. Well, now, because of all of the growth in their in, in industries, they are booming. They now have over 300 million individuals who have no debt, who have up to 40% savings because they couldn't afford to buy anything, and so they saved. They came from a very austere background. Now, these are the children of the families that went through the Cultural Revolution and were part of Mao's uh, Mao's enigma, and therefore they have this idea of you know supporting the state, etc. Now they're not political ideo- ideologists as such, but they sure want what we have. So now you have these cities being built. By the way, these are not regular cities. China is building cities that would almost dwarf anything we have in the United States. The closest city in America that is like these cities would be Dallas. Beautiful large skyscrapers, followed by family uh, family complexes with front yards and backyards and large square footage. And we're not talking about small little cities. We're talking about one million new people per year per city. And they've got 30 of these cities being built around China. They call them their ideal communities. and But these require food and water, two resources China's challenged with. So what they've done, they've gone to the poor areas. And the poor... 800 million people in China are very unhappy because they've been, in effect, disenfranchised. And they're not stupid. They see what's going on. So then they grow the food. Well, there's ever greater demand for more food because now people can afford things they would never have eaten before. 
pork is their largest protein, animal protein source they grow, but now they want every vegetable and every fruit all the time, 12 months a year. They want supermarket stock. They're not buying locally and seasonally. They're not storing. None of the old things are being done. They want it now. They want, they've got sub-zero refrigerators. They want them full. So that has put such stress upon the farming community that's overusing its farmland. It's not resting it all the time on our traditions. And by the way, the Chinese are a very bright culture. They've had thousands of years to master many disciplines. And now this whole new economic reality of a template is stamping itself on top of all these old cultures and cause very much the same kind of disruption and destruction and degradation that we saw in the American culture, the main culture expanding, wanting more, and then the, uh, the counterculture, which was the primary providers of it, being overwhelmed, and it's destroying their land. That's what this says, and they're actually admitting it. They're, they're saying, we're destroying our land. Now, of course, they've got a lot of land to destroy. They have 300 million acres they can destroy. And how many they'll destroy before someone finally says, what can we do about this and slow it down? And I don't think that's going to happen because China is wants to become the number one uh, country in the world as far as domestic product, and they've already exceeded America in almost all other areas except our energy use. So that is a big problem. Your thoughts, please. You know, and uh, one of the things that uh, I was in the city of Shining in northeastern China, the edge of the Tibetan Plateau a year ago, and the the building boom is absolutely incredible. But if you look at where they're actually building around the cities, they're building on some of the best farmland they had. Uh, it's something that has happened, uh, well, in, in Europe at one point, but it slowed down, and it's happened in the U.S., but not at the same pace. Uh, but if there's one thing that if you forecast out 100 years that China probably cannot afford to do, it's lose productive farmland. They've got a growing, as you're saying, a growing population and growing material desires for improving their uh, their diet and quality of life, and yet they're losing land year after year. If you look at globally, we're losing, that I've seen estimates that we're losing on the order of a percent or so of our farmland uh, every year uh, over the last couple decades in terms of its ability to, to be uh, fully uh, productive and, and, and uh, healthy. That's a trend that can't continue, obviously, because uh, if you forecast out at 100 years, we'll have no farmland. It's clearly a ridiculous projection because something will happen long before then to change it. But the trend is disturbing. If you just look at what it takes to actually support a human society, it takes enough productive farmland to sustainably feed the population and so if the population's rising and the amount of farmland's going down, eventually those two curves will intersect. Um, and the only thing that could prevent them from that is continuous technological innovation that would lead to higher and higher and higher crop yields. And if you look at the lesson of the Green Revolution that you were mentioning earlier, the sort of intensive uh, industrialization of agriculture that that involved raised crop yields, but then they leveled off and now they're starting to fall. In other words, it's not necessarily sustainable to treat a farm as a factory unless that factory is based on the natural productivity from recycling uh, fertility through the soil, through multiple crops, through the return of manure, and not through the, uh, the addition of things like uh, heavy metals and, and other pollutants. And uh, China's not the only country that has uh, been re returning heavy metals to the soil. The, the U.S. And, and Europe have very high levels of cadmium in their soils as well. And one of the things that I, in their farmland soils, uh, in places, and one of the things I was very surprised to learn in doing the background research for, for the book Dirt, was that there were companies in the United States that were producing 
fertilizers, or what was marketed as a soil amendment or fertilizer, from the, the flu ash from uh, smelter operations. Mm, that's they, terrible. It, yeah, it'd be very rich in heavy metals, but you could take the same material that you would, uh, if you just had it as uh, a waste product, it would have to go to a toxic waste dump. But if you repackaged it and mixed it with other stuff and sold it as fertilizer, because things like cadmium and other heavy metals in trace amounts are essential nutrients for plants, but the key is trace amounts. <laughs> um, and so there were companies that were, that were mixing it into fertilizer and then selling that product. Rather than paying someone to dispose of it in a toxic waste dump, they were essentially selling it to farmers to put on their fields. Um, which I, there were no laws against. I'm still not aware of laws against it, uh, although this was brought to light oh, roughly a decade ago. Um, it was one of those things that, that, in terms of people's attitude towards the soil, I found absolutely shocking, because if you think like a geologist about what's, what soil is, it's sort of, the, sort of the font of all life, and yet we were treating it as a toxic waste dump. Make made no sense to me. I have... Um, I went around to the health food stores in the town where I also lived down in Florida. I found in the summertime, you just couldn't find anything. And I asked why. They said, well, it's summertime. It's Florida. Nothing grows. It's too hot. So I said, well, how do you know that? Well, because we know it. We've lived here. So I went by some local organic farmers' places, and, and they were a mess. So I decided I'll test this. So I, I built a, a quarter-acre organic farm, and within three months I had over 100 different types of lettuce growing. Anyone goes to my website, you go up, you look at the farm, and you'll see the pictures of all that was growing. I grew over 60 types of uh, different herbs and over 10 types of edible flowers, all outside right in the middle of the summer, and I just used a, a 30, 30% shade cloth. And uh, I built up the soil, and now the soil is about uh, 18 inches, build up soil. I composted mm-hmm. everything, went to the ocean, got the seaweed, did all these simple things, went to local um, uh, stables and uh, dairy farms and got their old hay, composted all. Well, now, 12 months a year, I can show that you can grow anything. And if you just use some common sense and stop following everyone else who's been doing it wrong. <laughs> yeah. And it's just amazing well, that no one had figured out that, you know, gee whiz, duh, block 30% of the sun and <laughs> you don't burn out your crops. <laughs> yeah, the, my, uh, we, we, I live in a uh, uh, neighborhood in North Seattle that was, uh, you know, it was clear-cut and then probably the turn of the century around 1900. And they, as part of that, they stripped the soil off. So when we bought the house in 1998 or whenever we bought it, the uh, it, we inherited the sort of destroyed soil of a, of a yard. And uh, my wife is an avid gardener, and she's sort of taken it on herself to restore the soil on our property. And in about, what, six, seven years, she's been able to utterly transform it based on the same ideas of returning material to the soil, building up the organic matter, taking care of the soil. Um, although I, I, I will admit that we used an awful lot of uh, leftover Starbucks coffee grounds uh, rather than the hay. <laughs> um, but we're able to grow a lot of food from a very small area in our yard by essentially investing in the quality of the soil. And stuff grows year-round. We're able to grow chili peppers in Seattle where you know there's not enough sun to, by conventional wisdom, grow chili peppers. Oh, you got a lot of rain there. <laughs> 
we got plenty. You're welcome to uh, as much as you'd care to take. <laughs> <laughs> and you also have sawmills that have a lot of uh, sawdust that could also be composted down. Yes, and there's 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 uh, there's lots of trees in the state of Washington. So the um, uh, source of uh, wood chips and sawdust and things like that are are, are not hard to find. Um, and I've actually been very surprised over the last year in um, talking to uh, farmers and local farmers around Seattle as as the book came out and people became aware of it. Uh, I became aware of just how many people are trying to do experiments like what you were doing in Florida on a local level of taking an old farm that hadn't been farmed for decades and turning it into sort of a new organic farm based on uh, a community-supported agriculture, trying to get local produce back into the city. And the area around Seattle has been uh, fairly progressive in terms of agricultural zoning to help help foster that even as the suburbs keep uh, creeping out into what had been agricultural areas. And I got something in the soil that you almost never see anymore in American dirt. Worms. Mm. Big old worms. <laughs> and you know you got good soil when you got worms. Well, you've got a lot of worms, you've got good dirt. We uh, yeah. our, our worms uh, kind of smell like, if you pick them up out of our yard, which my wife has seen a similar transformation of something that had no worms to now there's big chunky worms, but they smell like Starbucks coffee. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, David, thank you very much for being on and the good work you're doing, and hopefully people will pay attention to looking at the dirt a little differently and realizing that we must do something about our farmland in America, or one day we will have a farm crisis. And we have the beginnings of it now, because we have a lot of soil in America that cannot sustain any kind of major life, because there's there's too much heat. It's too hot, especially in your Arizona, Nevada, New Mexico, uh, California areas. And then there's too little water. So we have this tendency to let's make an oasis because everything's trendy in, in uh, you know, a particular area. Instead of saying, is this realistic? Should people be living here? Should people live where it is sustainable? And I believe people should live where it's sustainable, not create artificial environments. Otherwise, you end up in too many people in an environment that cannot support it. Yeah, I think the bottom line on sort of the future of civilization is that we need to adapt what we do to how the world works rather than trying to do the inverse so that people can live sustainably anywhere, but it's a function of how they live there. And if we take methods of farming to places like Arizona where they are not sustainable, then, uh, you know, it simply can't be sustained. <laughs> You're right, and you'd think that that's a no-brainer. Well, either we have no brains... And it's a real no-brainer, but we're just being lazy. Thank you very much, David Montgomery, for being with us today. Thank you. Good to talk. Professor David Montgomery, this is a uh, continuation of our series this week on the environment.